Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Rob, nice to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. I, I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Talk a bit about recycling and its relation to climate. Yeah, and what you guys are doing is really cool, and I love uh, integrating business models into creating a better world. So before we delve in too deep, I always love to get the podcast started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Sure. Yeah, I'll give you some background on myself. I uh, uh, I've lived in Colorado because I, I know you're here in Colorado, same with some a lot of your audience. I've lived in Colorado for over 25 years. Uh, I moved here from Vermont right after college to uh, focus on skiing and snowboarding. And I lived in Crested Butte in the mountains for several years. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. And uh, I had moved down to the front range of Colorado to get a, quote, real job, unquote. And, uh, try my hands at a real job is what I said at the time. And uh, I spent close to a decade in telecommunications, uh, working on uh, 911 call routing and public safety, the, in a company that's familiar with a lot of folks in the Boulder area, which is called Entrado and now West. Uh, and then I uh, shifted my career uh, trajectory and I worked at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado, uh, for several years in the commercialization wing of the, uh, of the laboratory. And I, my focus was helping small businesses and startups gain access to capital and access to the scientific resources at the Energy Laboratory, which is a Department of Energy facility. So I got, had the opportunity to walk, work with a lot of innovative companies, as well as a lot of different aspects of renewable energy and energy efficiency that they focus on at NREL, like bioenergy to solar, wind, building efficiency, microgrids and electrical efficiency. Uh, and from there, I, I joined a startup incubator that was at NREL and Colorado State University in Fort Collins called Innisfere Ventures, which helps grow uh, science-based uh, and hard, hard tech-based startups here in Colorado. Now, my focus was on clean, what we call clean tech, and I ran the clean tech program there, helping uh, startups that were focused on technologies such as batteries, uh, material science, water technologies, recycling, uh, and renewable energy to kind of get gain early traction, early proof points in the uh, in their technology. Uh, you know, to not transition from kind of their first stages to pilot projects and proof, and so they could then start to garner investment capital to grow their businesses. So I've gotten to work with a lot of real interesting companies, uh, startups in Colorado, which are not necessarily startups anymore. Uh, some companies like Solid Power. It's a battery company out of Louisville, which has gone public now. Uh, Lightning Hybrids up in Fort Collins, which has also gone public. Uh, and that's how I met Amp Robotics, which is one of our portfolio companies. Uh, and I was highly engaged with the founder and CEO, Dr. Matanya Horowitz. And I transitioned from the, um, the incubator and the, the funding side to working in the company uh, about five and a half years ago with Matanya. And, Amp Robotics, when it was at a very early stage startup company prior to 
products and revenue at that time. Really cool. So was your interest in like startups or your kind of transition into like the clean tech space kind of based on maybe like necessity because that's what was was going on then? Or did you have interest in just startup companies in general? Yeah, I had a uh, degree in environmental science in college, and I kind of wanted to go back to some of those roots. Uh, and I enjoyed my time in telecommunications, particularly the intersection with doing something that was really important to people. Like we were we were building the first nine one one call routing systems for cell phones at the time. Wow! So very impactful thing, right? That uh, at the company we called work worth doing. And so that is helping, you know, save lots of people's lives. Uh, and I enjoyed it, but I wanted to take that theme and re-intersect it with kind of the environmental uh, background that I had uh, prior to being a ski bum and then, and then working in telecommunications. So uh, I made that transition to NREL, but I did that by going to business school. So it wasn't just a straight transition. I, uh, I went to business school full time and became uh part of some programs in business school uh, around uh, a sustainable business and ethical business. And they had a connection to NREL where I picked up an internship then and then eventually employment when I graduated. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I was wondering what your, your fake job was. I had assumed it was probably ski bumming around. Yeah. But that's cool. <laughs> how has this like worth worth doing mantra kind of led you to what, to how like you've continued to progress your career over the years? Yeah, I, I think it's a kind of a guiding principle for me, uh, but I I feel that it's it's beyond it's more than just my view of the environmental side being work worth doing. Uh, from my experience now over several decades of working, I mean I'm not that old, but I'm not that young. Uh, work worth doing means a lot of different things, uh, and and for me I seek that out in different aspects. So sure, at Amp Robotics we are uh, we're doing multiple dimensions of worth worth doing we are and we'll talk about these but we are trying to fundamentally change the cost of sorting and recycling to make recycling profitable and competitive with landfills as a as a destination for material for waste material um, and inherent with that is greenhouse gas savings so that's work worth doing uh, but you know one of the one thing that i've evolved to over time in my career that i think is really important is What's my impact to my direct community? And with when I joined Amp Robotics, there was four or five of us in the company. Now we have over over two hundred employees. Awesome. So to me, helping to create two hundred jobs for families, right, in our community is is really important to me, and that is work worth doing too. So um, it's particularly when you get to be in in a company, and it's from its early stages to its growth. Yeah, there's these other these metrics you want to hit, but that one really feels good to me, and and we're going to continue to expand. So, uh, but like a lot of those jobs are in Colorado, so you see it and feel it directly right. in your community. Yeah, I love that, and then the the multi dimensional benefits. It just makes you feel good when you're helping people and you're helping your community, and you're creating mm -hmm. a product that makes the entire economy better off. It's amazing. Let's let's talk about AMP. Like, what is AMP? And I'm curious why it began in in Louisville. I guess it just came out of perhaps like an incubator in Colorado, or how did that come about? Yeah, you know, our our founder, uh, Doctor Matanya Horowitz, who I mentioned earlier, is actually a CU Boulder grad. He grew up let's in go Buffs. He grew up in Louisville, Colorado. Uh, and uh, after uh, undergraduate, he got his doctor in um, in uh, 
robotics and control theory at Caltech. And he was looking at where can I apply uh, this, this work I've been doing around perception technologies and artificial intelligence using imagery. Cool. Uh, and he was looking at several different applications for that. For example, we know it's quite common in now in, in um, autonomous vehicles. You see it in agriculture applications, a lot of different applications. And he had uh, the chance to visit a recycling facility and saw, and this is these are the facilities called material recovery facilities where our municipal recycling that we put in the bin goes to. And they have to separate these um, non-compatible materials because we put in paper, we put in metals, we put in plastics all, all in there. Those have to be separated out in order to be sold onto a, a scrap commodity market. And he's seen all this complexity and challenges there around the labor and the sortation systems that are applied and thought it'd be a really good application for the type of technology he had been working on and was interested in commercializing. So he came back to Colorado and, and started that company here uh, and, um, and and back in eventually back to Louisville because we're headquartered in Louisville now. Uh, and so, yeah, so the roots come from Colorado with a you know, homegrown, uh, homegrown guy who wanted to start that up here. Uh, and at a, at a high level, what we are doing at Amp Robotics is we are we're addressing the sortation costs, those challenges of when you have that mixed material that's delivered to a material recovery facility. Those costs are prohibitive now. They are quite expensive. Uh, they may be using quite a bit of manual labor to separate out these complex packaging materials. Uh, and they may be using technologies and assets that may be 20 to 30 years old. And, and honestly, the packaging is 2022. And the, uh, the methods may have been built and deployed in 1995 at some of these facilities. And so uh, the infrastructure uh, in some ways prohibits the progression of, of recycling. Because what we want to do ultimately, as I mentioned earlier, is get the, co the cost of recycling to be competitive with landfilling. So there's an alternative choice ultimately there versus sending things to landfill. And so that means there is that value to be had in the, in the recycling stream. And how do we go in there and, and open up that value? And that's a lot of what we do through these advanced sortation technologies to deal with the complexity in the packaging stream. Man, that is so awesome. I'm so fully behind that mission. Like the fact that we're just burying things in the earth and leaving it for later when you could potentially be reusing them. That's that's so cool. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Let's let's go to kind of like a higher level and talk about like what exactly recycling is. I know a lot of people have like a kind of an idea of it, but I, I found I have this amazing, I don't want to call it realization. It's kind of like a sad dawning that there are these symbols on your plastic containers that look like recycling symbols, but they're actually like this sorting code. So like people think that they're throwing their plastic bottles into the recycling and it's getting recycled, but it's not. Uh, that was just crazy for me. People should really look into that if they didn't know. But um, like what what is recycling? How does it work? And I'm really interested to hear a bit about this scrap commodity market that you had mentioned previously. Yeah. So I'll start with that kind of scrap commodity side first. So uh, for as much as recycling is an environmental effort, right? We can reconstitute these materials. Generally, you have an inherently low greenhouse 
gas emissions and much lower energy usage when you're making something out of recycled material versus virgin material. It's recycling is also for cities and municipalities, uh, a diversion aspect. It helps them to reduce costs of sending material to landfill when they can send it to a sorting facility and can profit from that uh, movement of that material to a commodity market. But it is fundamentally a commodity market and the start of a supply chain, uh, despite being both environmental and diversion goals and all these other aspects. And and if you look at the primary commodities, they are paper, metals, and and plastics that are in our our municipal recycling, uh, mostly packaging. And there are markets that want that. And there's some markets that are intrinsically linked to to municipal recycling, particularly paper and metals, aluminum and steel. Uh, They are they get quite a large volume of material uh, from recycling, uh, and they use those um, to create things like tissue paper, cardboard boxes, right? Uh, more aluminum cans, etc. Uh, plastics is a challenging world, and that's where a lot of people's focus often is, and it should mm-hmm. be because that's that's kind of the wild west in some ways right now. And plastics are where a lot of people say, "Hey, are are things actually being recycled? Are they not being recycled?" That chasing arrow recycling. Uh, Mobius loop is on there. Does that mean it's really being recycled? And and plastics is a whole podcast potentially unto itself, right? I've done as, a couple of those, <laughs> right? As plastics are different, they're all different polymer types, and so some of those are in higher demand in the commodity markets, and some are of lower demand or no demand at all. But to us as consumers, we're generally viewing them as plastic. We're not differentiating them as high density polyethylene. Um, low density polyethylene, polypropylene, etc. So, uh, in some ways, what is recycling really depends on your perspective. Uh, uh, is it is it the supply chain? Is it the environmental side? Is it the diversion side? But I, I point out a few few examples of recycling. We we generally attach to the municipal world, right? Because that's what we live in, right? We're putting the stuff in the in our recycle bin. Is that like road? residential? Residential, yeah, residential recycling that, that you and I would be doing. But there are robust markets for industrial recycling out there. So um, film and uh, plastic uh, shavings and such, those are uh, quite commonly recycled and captured because they're quite clean material. Uh, lead acid batteries is probably one of the greatest recycling stories in America that isn't really told. We recycle over 98% of lead acid batteries in this country. And those are like what are in your car. The reason that's so successful is one, it's legislated at the federal level that you have to recycle these things. Second is that it has an infrastructure supporting that, that's mature, right? You take your car to the car dealer or you take your car to the mechanic, they take your battery, replace it, and then they have a system to recycle that. So recycling is actually quite broad and quite complex, but a lot of our discussion here will be on that residential. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, it it sounds like it would be worth bringing on someone to talk about the, uh, the business side of recycling, Mm -hmm. but, um, I love talking to people. There's this idea out there that we need to like reduce our impacts, use less energy and do less things in order to fight this climate crisis. But the more and more, the deeper and deeper I dive into it, it's really the fact that we have 
vastly inefficient systems that is causing most of the problems. It's like, why would you not recycle? It's like when you're throwing something out that has innate value, you're throwing away money. So, you, you know, I love trying to create these incentives through the markets for people to actually take care of the environment. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a really cool thing that I was thinking of when you were saying that. Um, so how much is this like the distinction between someone sorting the recycling at home versus eventually when when it comes to y'all? So like what happens when I throw a non-recyclable thing into the bin? Are you guys then sorting that into landfills or how, like how much personal responsibility is necessary for this kind of thing? Yeah, so generally what happens when you put something that is not recyclable into the recycling bin has a few dimensions to it as well. So first of all, residential recycling is not the same depending on where you are in the United States. And that's part of the inefficiency that you, that you've identified. It's one of the inefficiencies in the system. So what they may accept at the Boulder County recycling center may not be the same thing that's accepted at a recycling facility in Texas. They have different focus areas of the materials that they want. And so for us, you know, if we go around places, different places, we assume it's recyclable based on what we know. Um, so first of all, you may be putting something in the bin that's clearly recyclable in your city, but may not be recyclable in the city you're visiting. In. So that's that's one challenge. And that's uh, something we address by uh, having the this artificial intelligence that can identify these materials. We, we work on trying to, and particularly in my role at the company, is trying to create more value of what's in that material stream. And if you did that, if you put that object in a city where it isn't recycled, there's a high likelihood that that is just taking an expensive trip to the landfill. It's going to the recycling facility and passing back out. Uh, but if we're successful in what we're doing and, and some of the roles that I have at AMP of trying to create markets for those materials, a, a market pull, so we can get that value out of the recycling stream. If you put something in there that shouldn't be in there inherently, like um, a hose or Christmas lights, right? Um, those are actually potentially going to hurt a lot of people at a recycling facility because of the machinery that's going on there can get tangled up and they can uh, be shut down. Uh, their business can stop uh, and have a significant impact. So um, we certainly don't want those things in the recycling, but honestly, you will find anything known to mankind in the recycling stream. It just makes its way in there. Of course. So, so we have kind of two different scales of what shouldn't be in there. What, what should or shouldn't be in there based on the standard recycling standards in your community and acceptability. And then there are these hazards uh, that can create a lot of challenge. And if you take a step back and think about this contamination, uh, some of the best recycling facilities will probably have about 5% or less contamination. But that's, that's the exception. Most facilities of their input and their processing 50,000 to 200,000 tons of material per year, 10 to 20% of that is what shouldn't be in there. So if you're trying to run a business and 10 to 20% of your input is, is garbage, effectively, it impairs your ability to be a successful operator and profitable. So um, this is a huge challenge for the recycling industry. How do you educate people? And it just keeps going over and over. How do you educate people as to what to put in there and not to put in there? Because as we innovate, and there's a lot of innovation in recycling, we come out with these technologies and new methods, we're still reliant upon 
you know, the residents to put the material in there and hopefully put the right material in as well. Yeah. I mean, even beyond educating people, there's how do you incentivize them to actually want to do it? And what came to my mind is when you say that something goes to the recycling center and then is taking a very, a much more expensive trip to the landfill. I imagine that that's not paid by that person. That's split equally by the taxpayers. So like, it's like, oh, everyone else will take care of it. If I just throw it in the bin, you just throw it in the bin, you know? Is that, am I kind of understanding that correctly? Yeah, really you're incurring two transportation costs there. One to the uh, recycling facility and another trip uh, transportation costs to the dump. And uh, that directly may affect the recycling facility, but uh, over time it will affect the contracts and such with the uh, municipality and potentially raise the price on the municipality and on, on you and I as taxpayers. Yeah. And transportation costs is cost emissions as well. So that's something to factor in. I'm a big fan of carrots over sticks personally, not, not to know which one necessarily works better. I know it's circumstantial, but, uh, creating some kind of incentive for people to make money. If there's innate value in these costs, if we could, you know, monetize at each place, it seems like a, a good way to go about it. Just just some ideas. I don't really know. Let's get into talking about how the, the technology at AMP actually works. And something that's really cool is that you guys use a, a neural network in the in the AI system, right? That's right. Yeah, we have an artificial intelligence. It's a software that we've developed at AMP Robotics. And if I take a step back, it's really what we do are, are kind of three components in this sortation. So this material is coming in, as I mentioned, we're picking it up from your recycling bin, and it's going to a material recovery facility where it's effectively put on a conveyor belt and, and passed through different types of sortation uh, steps where they are attempting first really to pull out that contamination that we mentioned, especially the dangerous things. Uh, and then really they separate paper and three-dimensional objects. Right? So cardboard, flat cardboard boxes, paper from cans and bottles um, and, and plastic containers. And, and so our robots are then uh, positioned in these paper lines as well as these plastic and aluminum lines. And, and they are robots. Uh, I mentioned that we developed the software, but we're also a hardware integrator. So we don't build the robots. We acquire those, but we integrate them into our hardware design. So the frame that holds the robot up, the air system that helps the robot uh, pull material off the line, uh, and other supporting ancillary uh, hardware that goes into that. Uh, and so we have the robot, which is really kind of like arms reaching down to get this material. We have a camera, which is, you know, basic kind of industrial video camera that's taking a video of the conveyor belt. And then we have our software, which is that artificial intelligence, which is what you mentioned is a neural network. So it's an artificial neural network that's taking that imagery from the camera and, and interpreting what those objects are using this kind of pattern recognition that it's been trained on. And it's been trained similar to a, a human brain, actually very similar to the way you and I were trained when we were about two to three years old. Of course, we don't remember that, but that's I have a child, so I got to see a kind of similar evolution there. You're yeah. being shown objects and re- positively reinforced as to what those are. So we have the software that 
uses this training by being exposed to millions of images of the of these objects in these distressed wow. states because they're pretty distressed. They're crushed and squashed. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so it's seen all these images of this is a number one PET bottle. And here's all the different ways it comes to you, right? It could be squished this way, that way, labels hanging off, caps, no caps. And so we effectively are exposing it to all these positive images to train it, to reinforce its ability to ultimately infer in real time doesn't look at a database or anything. It infers in real time, just like you and I would, that this is a, a number one plastic bottle or this is a number five polypropylene container uh, or an aluminum can or some of the contamination as well. So that neural network, really, I like to look at it as a brain. I mean, it is like a brain and it's been really grown up in, only in this environment. It knows the conveyor belts and it knows all this material and it's exp- through our software stack and what we what we work with is we continuously train it. We continuously find where it may not be as confident. And we go out and we can search and get more imagery and expose it more and more. So the more robots we sell, the more data we acquire, and the more our system continues to become more accurate for all of our customers because they benefit from that kind of network effect where we were successful, we sell more, the systems get smarter, and they sort, identify and sort at accuracies of well over 90% accurate today you know, in these uh, facilities now. Does it become like exponentially better at what it does or does it not work like that? Yeah, the, in machine learning, there's you generally actually start to plateau over that 90, maybe okay. 85 to 90%. Um, I tried to use that excuse with my grades in school, you know, right? Like it's, it's, it's easier to move from like a, from like a a C to, or a D to a C to a B. And it gets a lot harder, right? To go from, you know, B plus up, right? So in machine learning, you tend to have a lot of great progression early on. It's ramping up fast, Uh, but to get that really high accuracy, uh, it requires a lot of imagery uh, and a lot of, um, really smart and talented people to not consider these neural networks to simply be static. We have multiple neural networks that are doing different types of predictions under this. And one may work better for a certain environment over another. So our team is continuously innovating on those neural networks. Uh, but it doesn't, it has that kind of exponential growth early on. And then most machine right. learning applications tend to, uh, you know, plateau at, at the higher accuracy because it's really hard to move a percent at a time over 90 right yeah i'm trying to like wrap my head around the neural networks like it gets inputs and it puts outputs and it gets more inputs and it takes in more information what i immediately thought of is like you said uh positive reinforcement i immediately thought as a little kid if you touch the stove and you burn your finger it's like i'm not (laughs) going to touch the stove again but this one is particularly how does it know when it it was correct yeah that's a that's a good question so um it not only identifies what it is, but it gives out a confidence score. It says, I'm, you know, I'm 60% confident it's this, or I'm 90% mm-hmm. confident it's that. So we actually take those confidence scores and that's where we go and seek out material where we may have a low confidence. Uh, so it's kind of telling us, you know, uh, I can, I may only be able to see a part of it because it may be slightly occluded, but based on what I see, I think it's 70% this you know, type of material. Uh, so we're able to go and get more and more imagery around those scenarios and situations and increase it. So it's communicating with us 
uh, through that confidence score about how well it's doing. Uh, we certainly also have customers, right, who, are, who communicate to us and say, hey, I don't think it's getting this. Uh, and right. so we'll, we'll then go seek those images out and, and train and add more uh, imagery into the training for the brain. Have you or anyone else had the team from the team had any like ideas about how else this technology could be used to reduce waste like outside of your facility or just generally bring down the carbon emissions somewhere else in the in the economy or in the world? Yeah, certainly. I, there are a lot of applications for us in these material recovery facilities, and those are our customers, uh, both there as well as downstream from their their customers, which are plastic reclaimers. They're the ones who are actually taking the plastic and melting it down and, uh, and making a recycled resin. So we have business with them as well uh, in this sortation. Uh, same with the paper, uh, downstream paper uh, fiber mills as well. Uh, uh, but within that group, uh, we're highly focused in there and we're expanding our products in there. One thing we do is separate the, uh, the camera and the software from the robots and we distribute these sensors throughout these facilities uh, to actually characterize or digitize the objects at different use cases in a recycling facility and say, well, what kind of impact does that have downstream? One challenge in recycling, particularly this residential recycling, is historically it's not a very data-driven environment. Uh, they kind of know approximately what's coming in and they know approximately what's going out uh, to the landfill or to their um, scrap commodity product. But they don't really know exactly what's going out in there. Uh, and so our products are able to help understand the composition of their outputs to increase the quality. So we increase the quality of their scrap outputs. We're decreasing the impact on the next player in the supply chain who has to deal with contamination as well. So there's this effort to create this data environment uh, that AMP and others are leading around not just only sorting, but what can we do with all this information that's actually in the in this stream? And over time, that'll evolve, not just from recycling, but we have a lot of, there's a lot of interesting end-of-life information in there around packaging and brands and you know, who's using what and what geography as well. So it goes beyond climate. Uh, where we also can extend this is, trying to relate these materials to greenhouse gas reduction in markets where they have incentives around that, such as carbon offsets, uh, mm -hmm. similarly plastic offsets in Europe as well. And we have a team in Europe now. We've expanded there and we have robots Fantastic. deployed in Europe as well. Those markets are not as mature here. There's a few pocket markets in the United States, but we want to make sure that uh, what, I, what I think I see a lot is that the climate and energy world and the plastic worlds are a bit separated, uh, in particular plastic. They are actually quite quite linked. They just, sure. when you look at like the, um, the, the recent meetings in Glasgow and such, you don't see as much discussion between the two. They're not really there. The plastic question isn't there, but there is plastic itself is a petrochemical product, right? If we had no recycling, plastic is essentially oil, right? And, and being put into a landfill. Uh, but with different forms of recycling, there is an inherent greenhouse gas reduction, right? Using recycled materials. Um, so one thing I hope that we will be doing as a company, particularly these carbon offsets and others, is linking that, you know, success of recycling with, with uh, 
climacles because it's actually one of the easiest, lowest hanging fruits you can do to reduce greenhouse gas. Like, what could you and I do, right? What could we do now? Do we get an electric car? Do I uh, ride my bike more? And many things, including recycling. It just inherently helps right away. And there is an infrastructure that may be inefficient per our comments, but there is an infrastructure there to take it and, and recycle it. So it is, uh, for us, there's still a lot of frontiers on how we connect uh, not only recycling, but our products to that um, kind of carbon value chain. Rob, thanks so much for sharing. I mean, there was so many fantastic insights in there. I can tell you've thought through this, obviously, uh, for a long time, and I, we can continue to do so. And it's amazing that there's so many people getting together and, and working in these spaces because it just makes sense to continually build a more efficient system and get more people involved. I, it's really, really mind-blowing to me to consider that there's all this these, this re, these resources out there that we really covet and, and then we use – and then we just bury them in a big ass hole and it just releases a bunch of gas into the atmosphere that, by the way, is, well, I forget the exact number, but it's the methane is ridiculously uh, more, has a larger greening effect than carbon. And that's coming out of, of the landfill. So it's just, it's just crazy. Um, I did want to, since we're sticking to this theme of, of residential and we were speaking about incentives of getting people um, to sort their recycling, I'm wondering if you, if you or anyone at your company was thinking about and rather than having the product or uh, this AI software be utilized, I guess the robots as well, just at a recycling center, could we eventually put it in people's houses or put it in an apartment building? So rather than having the human have to put in the effort because people are lazy to sort the recycling, if they could just throw everything into one hole and then it'll autom compost, recycling, all that stuff could be sorted uh, residentially. Right. Yeah, I think there are certainly natural extensions for this type of um, perception technology, uh, potentially even easier there because the objects aren't squished and crushed and, and dirty like we get them. And they're closer to their original retail form. Uh, but there are companies who are working on that. There's a company called Clean Robotics, which I believe has some roots or association with Boulder County. Uh, and they have a product called the TrashBot and, and several others that do that. But they, uh, the challenge with for them is what's the business model? How do they make a repeatable business model. So a lot of their application of like this, yeah. the smart, smart cans are actually uh, at like, I believe they're deploying them at malls, at campuses, at business campuses, uh, where there's someone with an incentive there who wants to, to monetize it, reduce it so they can have a, a business model. Uh, I have seen, however, in, in past work, uh, and it's public, but uh, because I was looking for through patents, uh, Amazon and Walmart actually have quite a few patents around um, perception of objects in, in a garbage can. Uh, so you never know where they may be coming from it soon in the future, but I think their driver when they did that was more from a retail perspective. How can I reorder a product for you as it's going into the, in, into the recycle bin or, or the waste can? So there is quite a bit of activity there, but it's for the moment to get the business model of traction, it's around the campuses and, and uh, malls cool. and, and scenarios like that. So it could certainly help there, uh, uh, but it'll still ultimately be you know, accumulated and, and brought to the sorting facilities where, where we'll be operating. Huh. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, there's always this issue of, of having to create some sort of 
market incentive. And I'm really always trying to wrap my brain about a way to monetize regeneration mm-hmm. or monetize environmental impacts. And I really don't want it to be just tax things because I don't yeah. think that's like an efficient way to sort things. But I, it's always if, if there's always people thinking about this stuff, trying to come up with creative solutions, I really believe there is ways to create markets around making the world a better place or creating more life uh, just yeah. to be creative, I guess. Yeah, so it's it's not necessarily a place where I have all the answers, but you do see activity there. I mean, historically, there are, are states where you have deposits, right, on cans and bottles and such as an incentive to try to bring those back. You tend to have higher recycling rates in those states for those materials. Uh, there may be some challenges to that, how you grow that, right, as it has it plateaued. Um, we do see emerging public policy now in the United States around recycling. Uh in my opinion, recycling for the most part, residential recycling has been a free market. You could put or not put material into your recycling bin, right? Uh, your city may or may not collect recycling. And then facilities, as we discussed, sort that and sell those on, on scrap markets. But there's some emerging policies called extender produce, extended producer responsibility. It's yeah. A little mouthful there that are are starting to emerge and will probably be seen in 10 to 15 states over the next five years. And that's where the producers or the packaging producers actually are going to fund the recycling infrastructure based on the amount of packaging they put on the retail markets in those states. So it'll offer a jolt in the arm for the recycling infrastructure and the collection infrastructure. But it still doesn't necessarily answer the question, what how are you going to convince someone to put it in into the bin? And that is a quandary that's that's challenging. And uh, I hope people are ultimately. I think you find a mix of incentives, right? There's the environmental incentive, and such. But the more we can create local markets and and manufacturing base where these materials may be desired, the closer we'll get to relating that to people, because. Uh, for example, if we're collecting plastics in Colorado and we're sending it to a recycling facility in Colorado that sorts it and there's a plastic reclaimer here, you're creating jobs here. And more people are associated with that activity that we are creating recycled resin. And hopefully they're selling that recycled resin to, to manufacturers in Colorado. So this, there are a lot of folks who focus who are thinking about recycling market development. And how does perhaps that incentive come through by creating you know, more manufacturing base. And, and then ultimately that relates to more and more people by working in that community or being related to knowing people who are working in that community and knowing that when you put that can in the recycling bin, you're helping with, with jobs uh, in your community as another incentive. So, so it's, I think it's going to be multifaceted, but it is, I think, the, the crux ultimately for residential recycling is how to incent and convince people to put, put the right material in in the bin frequently yeah i mean it seems simple enough because you know we all want the same things a happy healthy life full of love so you know mixing incentives into there but i guess it's not that always so simple Mm -hmm. um so speaking of of jobs i'm curious how this was done before your machine was created and then how do you respond to people's uh, concerns over loss of jobs to like ai and automation yeah so uh before we deployed these robots, and certainly in quite a few facilities today, um, you tend to have about 15 to 30 people working per shift at, at a sortation facility, along with 
some of the other mechanical separation that I mentioned, as well as some um, infrared sensing they may use for plastics and other stuff. So um, despite all that machinery, like I said, they still generally employ or attempt to employ about 15 to 30 people in there to do a variety of sortation tasks, quality control, or these complex materials. Um, before the pandemic, our customers were quite challenged to staff because it's a very dangerous and dull and dirty job. So you stand there for eight hours uh, uh, sorting through what is effectively trash. Uh, and there's high fatality rates uh, in solid waste and recycling, and there's high injury rates, uh, particularly uh, a lot of exposure to uh, nasty things like hypodermic needles and other things that are in there. As I mentioned earlier, it's not all recycled material that comes through there. So the, our customers, these material recovery facilities, generally operated under staff. They tended to, they tend to turn over employees within a month. So they actually don't have uh, competition. There's really not a competition between the robots uh, and, and the labor because they are 50 to 75 percent understaffed in the first place. So the robots are now going into those positions where they couldn't put someone in. And that's been exasperated with the pandemic as well. Uh, it's become, it's just like other labor challenges. It's become even harder to put people into those positions on top of the already existing challenging conditions in, in, in these facilities. So we are effectively really not competing with a, a job loss scenario. They were vacant uh, in, for the most part in the first place. Where we see customers who have consistent employees, though, in these sorting facilities, they're really doing great jobs training them on these robots, training them on, so on the software we provide to interpret um, all these materials. And so we're seeing some really interesting programs with our customers as well, helping upgrade skill set uh, and really expand the, the um, really job opportunities for their more loyal and consistent employees who've stayed there for some time. They get to work with a whole new type of equipment and machinery and, and industry within the robotics that are deployed there. Well, it sounds like the the perfect timing. Isn't it amazing how much of a factor timing has when it comes to building a new a new company? It's like surfing. I'm not the best <laughs> surfer. I've tried a few times, but it's like timing that wave, right? Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> really cool. Cool. So at the end here, I just would love to hear your final thoughts on just uh, how much we should, when it comes to becoming environmental stewards, reducing greenhouse gases or creating this circular economy, which is a huge factor. And I think mm -hmm. you're so, you're so right when it, when it comes to not decoupling plastic, for, this is literally just, I just released this film talking about my business model and why, um, one of the things when I was talking about carbon removal, I think removing plax, plastic waste from the environment should be just as important as extracting greenhouse gases because it has uh, potentially even worse detrimental effects on bio biospheric life, whatever the word is. I'm not a scientist. Mm -hmm. we, we go we go a little bit too deep on the show sometimes for me, <laughs> but but I love it. Um, yeah, just like how much is it on changing behavior, and how much can we actually change the system and create better products through innovation or better systems through innovation? Yeah, I I think behavior is a bit cultural, uh, ultimately. Um, so. You look at cultures like uh, some of the countries in Western Europe and Japan, and they have really high residential recycling rates. Some materials, over 70% of it is, is recycled. Um, so I think a lot of that is their culture. It's just how they, every culture has a different kind of interaction and relationship with waste. 
in the United States, we have more of a single use culture here. We use things and we toss things. We also have pretty low cost landfills, particularly in the in the middle of the country, right? If you're in New York, it's you know landfilling is quite expensive, but if you're in Kentucky, it's it's quite cheap. Uh, so we we have competition. We also have this behavioral challenge, and um, I would like to hope that Americans can change their behavior. But we've seen like number one plastic bottle PET recycling rates over the last 30 years get no higher than 30%, right? So the behavior is really not changing. Uh, so the question will be, well, what else can you do to improve that? So uh, I do think technology will play a role here. Uh, I think companies like AMP and others will be able to uh, expand this to not only um, looking at sorting your uh residential material, but potentially the, that landfill bound material as well, where most of the plastic and metals are going today. Uh, but we still certainly have to have some form of, of behavior change. Uh, but that's, it's really challenging. Um, and in a place like the United States, it's pocketed. Uh, you'll have um, some places where you'll, I think you'll see people engage in it more and more, uh, particularly with more education funded by those extended producer responsibility schemes. You know, they're not limited to just sorting. They're trying to help educate consumers get more access to curbside recycling in particular. Uh, that's a big part of the behavior. Um, we have curbside recycling, but a lot of America doesn't. Uh, they consider recycling access that you might have a recycling drop-off in your county, but people aren't going to drive over there and drop it off. So, the more we can get that bin in front of them in the first place, uh, the, that's the start of the uh, increasing their behavior. So I am both a bit bullish and a, and a bit non-bullish on it uh, because I know human nature and American nature in particular. But I think we get some places to go. And I think at other places we can compensate a bit with the technology. It's, I mean, there's no silver bullet. It's perhaps a silver shotgun blast at some point sure. <laughs> of multiple solutions. Yeah. Well, it's great to have people like you working on this stuff and thinking about it. Yeah. I'm imagining hopefully one day your company is going to build a, uh, a machine that dives into the landfill soup and starts pulling <laughs> out some precious metals that we can use again. Hopefully we, that's, I mean, I'm always thinking from like the future backwards at some point, we can't just leave that stuff buried in the ground forever. Like they, especially if there's valuable stuff in there. Uh, just thought, and you've also inspired me to want to talk to like a behavioral change specialist, though I do not want to be the person who is changing people because that seems like way too much responsibility for me to be like, here's my ideas. I want you to behave this way and I'm going to do that. But still, it'd be good to know how it would work. But um, Rob, it's been great having you on the podcast, man. I've loved uh, hearing all your ideas. It's been great. And it sounds like you had a, a bit of a winding road to get where you are today, but I'm really happy to, to see you there and be able to talk to you. I just love to ask people at the end what advice they have for uh, young people who are passionate about building a better world or may, may not know exactly how to contribute to what they want to build at the moment. Yeah, I think it may be an extension from that behavior discussion is, you know, folks who want to get out there that are passionate about building a better world, it's you know, we have to really think um, from other people's perspectives. Uh, and so when you're thinking about what you're passionate about, what you want to convince people of, think about their perspectives and maybe formulating different multidimensional arguments uh, to try and convince them of what you do. You know, when we have a lot of focus on climate change, we want to reduce greenhouse gas. Um, 
not everyone is as ed- maybe as educated as you might be in that scenario. Maybe people don't in their life not see those kind of situations because their income or their demographics. So think about it from their perspective and how can you present a value proposition that relates to them, right? We talked before about kind of job creation, right? Are you talking to potentially someone on Capitol Hill uh, and maybe you relate something to a national security level, right? Um, they also love hearing about job creation at, at Capitol Hill as well. Um, or you relate it to other aspects in their community. So really think about like expanding just from, from your focal point and how you know you're going to measure it and think about how to put it in, in someone else's terms. Because I think that's one big challenge for climate change advocates is really taking their story and getting it in the terms of those who may not be focused on that uh, on, on a daily basis like we might be. Yeah, I love that. Um, we all have different perspectives, but you know, we're all going after the same things, as I mentioned before. And then when you're an AI robot, you're you're trying to get that get up from ninety percent to ninety two percent, and that's a, a nice improvement, as far as I'm concerned. Rob, thanks for so much for coming on. It's, it's been a blast. Thank you, Ethan. No worries. All right, everybody. See you soon. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.